I want you to imagine a football team in its final game of the season. And I want you to imagine a team that is heading into the fourth quarter down by two touchdowns. Well, what does that team do? Well, a team in that situation sets its mind to win the game. It puts in all of its best players. They tell the injured wide receiver to tape up his ankle and get back in because this is the last quarter of play. They pull out all the stops, find a new gear, maybe call a timeout and give the game-winning troop rallying speech. Then you get in there and throw the Hail Mary pass for the win. But what does a team do when it's in the final game of the season, entering into the fourth quarter, and they're down by 10 touchdowns? Well, they switch strategy. Now they play to win not that game, but the next one in the next season. They pull their starters. They put in the second string. They give the, the benched quarterback an opportunity to get some reps. They test out some of the riskier plays that they were afraid to utilize because they might lose the ball. They plan for future wins. They don't stop trying to win that game, but they readdress their plan and they strategize for another season. We've been in this sermon series, The Path to Victory, for uh, about three weeks now. And what I've been arguing for a while is that I believe that Christians in our generation in the West have lost our current battle. That this generation has been lost. By that I mean that the institutions run by those in the world who hate God have won this battle. They've won those institutions. But Jesus has promised permanent and eternal victory. And we know that he has secured that victory. But it is not doing anyone any favors to say, ah, we're still kind of winning here and now. No. The institutions are burning, and it's our job to re-strategize to win next year's battle. I strongly believe that this is how Christians should be thinking about our culture war today. It is time that we set our kids up to win what we have lost. You and I are not the heroes of this story, and every generation likes to think of themselves as the final ones who live and breathe and survive and finally die at the climax of human history. I do not believe that's our age at all. We are not the heroes of this story, and for the record, neither are our kids. Jesus is the hero of the story, and he will build his church in the face of opposition victoriously and certainly. And he will do that through the generations of believers from now until he comes again. And brothers and sisters, this is not passivity. It is anything but. This is active. It is intentional. It is strategizing to win. We would not call it passivity on December 8th, 1941, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that rather than rush to battle, the troops went to boot camp. Why are they going away from the front line? Because it's time to train for war. That's why. I think that's the kind of season we're in as Christians today. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to encourage you from the word of God by showing you two texts from the Old Testament that form a single story. And I think you're going to see how these passages are directly related to one another and why it is that I wanted to show them to you today. 
Because these passages, I believe, encourage a generation looking forward to battles being won after they're gone, which is what I'm arguing for right now. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 17. And here's the text we're going to be covering today. Chapter 17, a portion of 17, and then a portion of chapter 22. And and if you've been here before, you know we love the Bible here. We love reading through and preaching through passages of the Bible. So as you see, I'm going to skip some. We're not undermining the word. Go home and read those passages. Get to know them. It's wonderful. But I want you to see these two that they may help us in our time. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and then give you a quick backstory uh, that gets us started at chapter 17. And then we're going to dive in and read through uh, several verses at a time. We may understand what's going on. At the end, I'll conclude with five application points that I think that we can take from this story in our lives today. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, we love you and we are grateful for your word. Help it as it does what it's designed to, to cut us to the heart. Help us to apply it to our lives. Father, if there are bridges for us to cross as we consider Old Testament truths in a New Testament, a new covenant day, help us to cross those bridges without error, so that we can love your word and still apply it and help us to worship you better because of what we see here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. David is the guy we're going to see here in this story. He has just been publicly anointed as the king of all Israel, and he moved into Jerusalem, which will serve as his headquarters and the new national capital of Israel. The ark of God had just been brought into the city, and David built a tent for it while he moved into a house made of cedar. And that's where the story picks up. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. So shortly after taking the throne, David was congratulated by the king of their northern neighbor, Lebanon, who supplies cedar for them over the generations. And he's living in a house made of this cedar. But you'll notice here that David has a good impulse. It's a good impulse. His thoughts here should be seen as commendable, I think. Any outside observer would be quick to affirm David's desire to build a temple to God in the new capital city of his earthly nation. And that's exactly what Nathan does in the next verse. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. Nathan was the prophet of God who served during David's time. He's the same prophet who will eventually confront David for his sin with Bathsheba, which will happen during the time period a few chapters after this. But here... He assumes that David's impulse is a God-given one and even encourages him to go ahead with his plans to build a temple for God. Now, it should be noted that this is not a prophecy. Nathan was not speaking on behalf of the Lord here, but was simply offering counsel according to what he thought was a godly idea. But you and I would be well served to realize that not every seemingly good idea is necessarily in God's will continues on, verses 3 through 6. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. 
For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling in all places where I have moved with all Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the Lord weighs in with the prophet Nathan. He does not wait long to correct Nathan's impulsive endorsement, nor does he even rebuke Nathan. Instead, he offers a correction and a reason. He reminds Nathan and David of the 400 plus years of time since the days of Moses, throughout which there was no permanent temple of God, even throughout the centuries of time since his people had come into the promised land. The Ark of the Covenant had been kept in the tabernacle, and God had never commissioned the construction of a temple in all that time. Furthermore, he even says in verse 4, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. So David need not be concerned about building a temple. It will not be his task. And that's the point of what's being stated in these opening few verses. A quick point on Nathan's speaking here again. Not only did God quickly correct Nathan's thinking, but he publicly declared the correction following the vision. I've heard people say sometimes, well, you know, LDS prophets, it's not the same because sometimes they'll say something, but we can't know that it's doctrine. Well, this prophet shows how true prophecy works. That when God speaks, if anything previously said was wrong, they proclaim the correction in the name of God so that error would not follow continues on. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. So here, God recounts all that he has done for David, the shepherd boy made king. And what's more, he continues to pour out promises about what he plans to do with David and his descendants after him. He says to him, essentially, you like what I've done for you already? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. He says, I'll make your name great. I will plant Israel permanently. I will crush your enemies. These are the categories of things he says. And look at verse 10. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. I love that. Oh, so you think I'm done with you? You think you can give me a gift? You think that you can repay me? You think that you can outgive me? I will build your house. And he continues. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. 
In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here, God establishes a covenant promise with King David. In fact, this is what we call the Davidic covenant, named after David. You need to know, though, that this is not the Mosaic covenant. Different. It's not what we've been referring to through our study in the book of Hebrews as a church as the old covenant. This is not that covenant. This is a different one. It is made with an individual. And while we see that the nation will prosper, that prosperity is a result of the fulfillment of the promise made to David. Israel will prosper because God will give her a permanent victorious king. In other words, Israel is the collateral benefactor of this covenant rather than the object of it. It is an unconditional covenant, which makes it much different than the old. Because there is no if-then statement. David is not in any risk of breaking this covenant. It will certainly be fulfilled. If you've been with us through the book of Hebrews, I've been making this super clear. The author of Hebrews makes this super clear. We today, after Jesus, live in a day in a new covenant era, which is distinct from the old covenant day. The old covenant was conditional. If the people broke the covenant, they were kicked out of the land. So over and over, whenever it's stated, it said, if you obey me, you'll remain in the land. But if you do not, I will drive you out. This is over and over. And see how that's different than the Davidic covenant. David is not at risk here. He says, I will do this. Now, what's going to follow this is David's sin with Bathsheba. He commits adultery with the woman, has her husband killed to cover it up. His deceit to a nation, his hubris leads him to this wickedness, and at the end of the time, he is found guilty. That same David will go on to dishonor God and refuse good counsel and will carry on with a census. The power of being a king will go to his head. The sins of David are listed. We see what he's done wrong. And yet, God established that this covenant will certainly come to pass. And who do you think that this covenant is talking about? Who is that offspring that will follow? Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the ultimate king of Israel. Now, of course it is true that this covenant promise will pass down from David to Solomon, to Solomon down to Rehoboam, down his line. Of course that will continue to be passed down, but the ultimate recipient, the ultimate heir, is Jesus himself. In fact, did you notice verse 13? I'm going to look back at that again. Verse 13 says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. If you've been with us since the beginning of our study in Hebrews, you'll remember that this has been recalled in Hebrews chapter 1, where the whole chapter is trying to tell us that Jesus is greater than any Old Testament prophet. He's greater than any Old Testament priest. And in this particular point, it says he's greater even than the angels. And I want to read for you what it says in Hebrews 1.5 about Jesus. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The author of Hebrews quotes this verse and applies it to Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate heir. If you don't know this, if you don't realize this, you need to. You need to see that Jesus is a king. He is king 
of the universe. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. This means that you and I dwell in his kingdom. That whenever we sin against him, we usurp his authority. We operate in a treasonous manner. We are to be judged for such treachery. Brothers and sisters, you and I all, before we were saved, we lived under that condemnation because we dared stand against the righteous and true king. And all of us, this is true of, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter what you believe right now, Jesus is still your king. And there is only one hope for you, that you repent of your sins and you turn in faith to that king because that king has such great love and mercy that he died for the sins of all of those who love him. Repent, turn in faith and be saved. And all the punishment due to you for your treasonous acts will be laid upon his shoulders and he will die for those sins. That will be attributed to you. If you've not done that yet in your life, you need to do that today. Talk to somebody today before you leave. Ask more questions about that because you have rejected your king and judgment will come. David, here's this covenant given to him. And what is his response? For sake of time, we're not gonna read through it right now. You, you need to look back through this again. Spend some time there this week. David responds with humble praise and worship. Literally, David, who am I that I should deserve this? Who is my family that we should deserve this blessing? Who are, who are my people? Who is Israel, Lord, that you have chosen us out of all the nations? You are mighty. You are great. You can do whatever you want. And only because it was in your heart to do this? Oh, this glorious worship that comes as a result is beautiful. But this passage, while it establishes this kingdom, it, it says this is going to be true about one of David's descendants. So what's David to do? So I, I don't need to build the temple. Okay? Um, you're going to do all of this no matter what I do. Okay? So I guess David could just go retire in peace. No? He doesn't have to concern himself with any temple building projects. God has promised to do that through someone else. Roll the credits on his life, right? No. I want to jump forward to chapter 22 because it kind of bookends a bit of what we see that comes about as a result of this promise given to David. If you have your Bibles, you can go to chapter 22. Again, sometime this week, it might serve you well to read in between to see all the cool things that happen. But for sake of time, we're going right to 22, picking up in verse 2. David commanded together to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails, for the doors of the gates, and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number, for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that's to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. So what does David do as a result of hearing, hey, you don't have to do the temple building thing? Oh, well, show me to my recliner. 
In fact, when he kicks this off, I can't imagine, it's hard to not imagine somebody going, David, did you, did you not hear? You, 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 don't have, you don't have to do all this. Yeah, I know. But look what he does. He sets himself to this. Well, my, my son's young. He's inexperienced. I'm going to prep this. I'm going to get this ready. And he bursts into action. Then look what he does. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So what happens? David charges his son to build the temple. Then he explains that he wanted to do it originally. He had that in his heart. But he even gives additional reasoning, insight here, into why it is that God told him that he could not be the temple builder. God tells him that he has too much blood on his hands. Now, I don't think this is an admonishment on David. It could be. It's possible. David did, uh, for example, kill Uriah prior to this time. Now, that was between 17 and 22 that that period of time took place. He did do wicked things like that. It's possible that's what God's talking about. I actually think that it's probably, all the text included, more likely that God planned this so that the one who would build his holy temple would not be known for something greater than that temple building task alone. That's what I think. Test this. No one should be able to say about that temple building king, oh yeah, isn't that the king who killed the giant? with a sling and a stone, right? And then he cut off his head with a sword. And then he, then he subdued the rest of the Philistines and put them to flight. And then he hunted down our enemies for a generation. And then he secured our borders and he, he got everything put together for us and he, he crushed everyone who came against us. Oh yeah, by the way, he built the temple. I think that God wanted his house to be built by a man of peace so that nothing greater could be said about that man than that temple building project. You can test that. He continues on here, nevertheless, to say this. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. This is God hearing, or David hearing from God, telling it to his son. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So David commissioned Solomon to follow the Lord's command here. He will not have to tend to battle, constantly warding off enemy attacks. His reign will be supernaturally protected by God for this great purpose. And he continues to say to him, Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding, that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. David prays here that God would grant Solomon discretion and understanding. He tells his son this, doesn't he? So that he would be fit for the task that he's been given. If you have ever read through the stories of David and Solomon, have any familiarity with this, uh, this person at all, this Solomon? Do you remember what he prayed for early in his reign when God said, I will bless you 
Do you want victory over your enemies? Do you want lots of wealth and prosperity in your lands? Long life? What do you want? Do you remember what Solomon prayed for? Don't say wisdom. That's not what he prayed for. God did give him wisdom. What he prayed for was discernment and understanding. That's what he actually prayed for. Here, David tells him that he's been praying for understanding and discretion. And Solomon goes and basically repeats that same thing. It is wisdom. I didn't mean to correct it. It is wisdom. Okay? But, but the wording's actually interesting there, isn't it? Literally, here, here's, here's why I'm, I'm pausing is to show this to you right here for a second. I don't think it's at all a stretch to think that he did not come up with that idea on his own, but that he got it from his father, David. His father, David, had been saying, I'm praying this for you. I want this for you. This is what I'm asking the Lord to give to you. So when the Lord asks Solomon, what do you want me to give to you? He goes, well, my, my father has always prayed this. Give me understanding and discernment. In fact, it would have taken great wisdom to ask for that. It's a mind blow. Think about that sometime. But he goes on. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. So that's, that's old covenant stuff, right? You will prosper, will stay in the land if you follow the rules of Moses. He's reminding him of that covenant because he's in that covenant. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it, timber and stone too. I have provided to these you must add. You have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number skilled in working. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. David reminds Solomon that he must obey the law of God. Remember, that's, a, that's an old covenant command. Yet again, he's reminding him, you, if you don't, it's going to go bad. But do what the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. He tells him this. Then he tells him to be strong and courageous, just like God told the next generation who came after Moses. And he tells him to not be fearful or dismayed. And he even explains that he sacrificed to set his son up well. With great pains, I have provided this for you. It's not like, well, I had all this surplus. I didn't know what to do with all of it, so I figured I might as well let you have some. That was not what the Bible says about David's preparations. With great pains, he provided for this stuff. He also says that the preparations are not entirely finished. Solomon would not get all of this on a silver platter, it's not automated, like you just go about your thing. This is, it's like an investment. You just go ahead and do your thing and it's going to be working on its own behind you. No, arise and work. Arise and work. Add to the preparations, the provisions that I've given you. And the Lord be with you. This is as far as we're going to let the text take us for today. Okay. I want to ask you big picture question, because this is always the question you need to ask when you read a passage or a couple passages in the Bible. Why are they here? What's the ultimate purpose of these passages? Why is this in our Bible and recorded for us today and preserved throughout the ages? The reason, the ultimate point of this story, it points us to Jesus. That's the ultimate reason this is here. Yes, it records true history. Yes, it tells us of this time when the temple was built. Yes, it does give us insight into those important things. But ultimately, it points us to Jesus. 
This famous son of David was the one who would go on to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. But here we see that it points us to a greater, more ultimate and final king. The more perfect and wiser king. The chosen son. He will build the greater temple of God. The permanent temple of God. And that will not be a temple made with human hands. That temple is us. Christians. If you need a reminder of this, I'm just going to read two quick passages in the New Testament that declare this. 2 Corinthians 6.16. For we, Christians, are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As David would commission his son Solomon to build a physical temple, God would commission his son Jesus to build a greater, more perfect, and lasting temple. A temple that's us built of souls, not stones. Ephesians chapter two says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Jesus is the ultimate builder. He is the final righteous king, the son of David who is and forever will be seated on the throne. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He's not waiting for it. It is his right now and he is reigning today and currently building his temple. And it is not a temple made of stones but of souls. We are the temple. We are his people and we have been commissioned by him to take part in his centuries-long kingdom-building campaign. It is a temple expansion project that will continue until his return. That's ultimately what this passage is about. But is there any other encouragement that we can take from this passage? Anything else that we can draw from David's relationship with his son here that we may find useful in our temple-building campaign as he was in his. I think absolutely yes. We can learn a lot from David and how he dealt with Solomon in this passage. And I suggest that this is how we ought to start thinking. And I'm going to give you five things to close with today. How did David set up his son to win? First, David gave his son a mission. He gave his son a mission. Verse 6 we read earlier said, Then he called for Solomon, his son, and he charged him to build a house for the Lord the God of Israel. He charged him. He charged his son. Solomon could have no confusion about what was expected of him. Do your kids know their purpose in this world? Do they know that it's not just to pursue the American dream? This is interesting. Do this for a second. This is kind of an encouraging exercise. Consider the greatest human enemies of the gospel in our nation today. Like, actually think of them. Picture them. And then consider the greatest allies our Christian faithful brothers and sisters who are standing strong even in the face of persecution. And then answer this question. Who has more kids? And now you can smile. Because we get to go home and train them. Simple math, brothers and sisters. The future of our nation and of the world will be whatever we train our kids to make it. That was not a backdrop potential for the gospel. The gospel plan was not that every generation has to hit the reset button. 
But each generation was to be trained and raised from those who came before them to continue building that temple. If we teach them to pursue the exact same things, if we teach this of our kids, to pursue the exact same things that the world pursues, we should not be surprised when they end up worshiping at the same altars. Our kids need purpose, resolution, something worth living and dying for. Our kids need a multi-generation vision, some plan that's going to last beyond them and even their kids and grandkids. And that's exactly what King Jesus has given us in the Great Commission. In verse 16, you saw this before, at the end of his his speaking to, to Solomon, David says to him, arise and work. The Lord be with you. David did not tell Solomon, son, you can be whatever you want to be and whatever you choose. I'll support you. I'll just, you can reset at your, your age. Whatever you think you should do. That's not what he told him. He said to his son, you have been given a mission from God and that's what you're to go do. That's what you're to do. You and I don't know what vocation our kids are gonna have. That's not what I'm talking about. We don't know where they're going to live, who they're going to marry. But we do know, we do know what their God-given mission is. We do know it. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that King Jesus commanded. We know it. We're not wondering, well, we know what we're supposed to do. I wonder what the next generation will do. No. We know exactly what it is. Keep building that temple to the Lord. That's the plan. And this is what David commissions his son to do. Listen, the world says, don't get in the way of your little kid's dreams. Disney pumps out one propaganda film after another, telling your kids to disobey their parents and to pursue whatever their immature heart tells them to do. This is literally at the the center of almost every Disney story. No joke. Go, go, Go check this out. And then cancel Disney, you know, Okay, you know, we don't play this game where we just say, well, let our kids just tell us what they want to do and we'll just get behind that. Our kids tell us what they want to do and we'll just, we'll fund that. Listen, this is so obvious. There was a time that if you asked my son what he wanted to be, he would have told you, I want to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Kids need their dreams shaped, okay? This mission is the most important inheritance that we can pass to our children. This is our legacy. Our kids are aching for us to direct them, to tell them what the mission is, to show them where the battlefield is. Not to say, good luck, go find an enemy to fight, go find some good guys to decide what, go, good, go out there. It can't be like that. We have a plan and a purpose. And don't miss this. While David did explain to his son the great importance of his task, He was careful to not lay the burden of the world on his son's shoulders alone. He tells him that it is the Lord who will build his house through him. Verse 18, I didn't get to this, but as he continues on, he says this to Solomon. Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand. And the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. So Solomon could have looked up at his daddy and been like, my daddy killed all the bad guys out there. And his daddy is quick to go, whoa, 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 son. Wasn't me. God did this work. You see anything good in me? 
It's because the Lord did this, and he will do that in you. So carry the burden rightly. I have a charge, a commission, something to go and do, but I will not be alone. And that's better than any force power or superpower or anything else that kids think is fun. Way better. Because it's real. In the same way, we must teach our kids both the eternal gravity of the task that's before them and the glorious truth that Jesus promises to do this work through them. I will build my church. I'll do it. The gates of hell shall not prevail. At the end of Matthew, he says to them, I will be with you to the end of the age. So first, David gave his son a mission. Second, David expected faithfulness. Expected faithfulness. I want you to consider this one with me. What does the world expect out of your kids? What does the world expect out of your grandkids or the next generation of children? What does it expect? I don't think it's a stretch to say that at best, they expect your kids to not in any way impede their ever-advancing God-hating agenda. At best. And at worst, they expect your kid to grow up and join their army of social justice warriors. And they're working hard to train them into that. But notice David's mindset. He demanded that his son obey God's commands. He makes this clear in a text we didn't yet cover, so I'm going to finish. I'm going to keep going to 22. Verse 19 said this. Now, David speaking to Solomon again. Now, son, set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord your God. You see how different this is in the, in the lines of the world? Follow your heart. What? Your heart is an imbecile. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is immature and foolish and sinful. It is deceitful above all else. Don't follow your heart. Who, told, who teaches you that? Not the word of God. David says, set your mind and your heart to seek the Lord. Tune it. That's what you need to do, my son. He demanded obedience to God. I think that we do our kids and the kingdom a disservice when we act as though we must just raise them to eventually get to a crossroads where they'll choose what to do, rather than raise them to stay on a path faithful to God. There is a difference in the way we can think about this. It's the wrong way of thinking to prepare our kids for a point of potential failure. We've got to stop expecting our kids to wander away from God. That's the expectation. If you talk to Christians and you spend time with Christian parents, you talk to them, they have teenagers, and they're like, well, my kid went wayward. Ah, all of them do. That's okay. They all hate God for a while. Really? Are you wonder? You, you wonder why when we expect that, that's what happens? Think about this. Of course your kids are going to have to make a choice. Of Of course. Of course they're not automatons. Of course you can't force them to go down that path of righteousness for the rest of their lives. Of course they're going to have to own that on their own. But you and I are not powerless in that choice. We're not powerless. That's not what the Bible says. Doesn't matter what you teach your kids. Never talks like that. Ever. Train them up in the discipline of the Lord. Your kids... Christians, your kids are better off than atheist families. They are. You're hearing the oracles of God. 
proclaimed to them. They're being taught truth. They're being set on a path. We should not ask them if they want to follow Jesus. You and I should be teaching our kids and telling them how to follow Jesus and then modeling it for them. Have you ever heard of the term boring testimonies? Have you heard of this term? If you grew up in the Christian church like I did, this is probably not at all surprising to you. All my life growing up, I was taught by example. That the only way to not have a boring testimony is to dishonor God for a ton of years in your life. And the more you dishonor God, the better the testimony. We were taught that. We were trained that. We were trained to be ashamed of the testimony that was too boring because it was not sensational enough. All the best testimonies are from those who wandered far from God and then came back. And this is just the way it went. And I'm telling you, if you grew up in Christian church, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you go to that Christian camp as a teenager uh, in, in the summertime, and everybody's flirting with the girls and the boys, and the whole thing is going on out there, and everybody's all hopped up on Pop Rocks and Mountain Dew and all emotional. And then they, they hunt down. And it's almost like the, whoever found the guy who's going to tell the testimony, they listen to the five or six testimonies, and they go... No, that's too boring. No, you didn't dishonor God enough. You didn't sin enough. Oh, you did a lot. Come over here. They pick the biggest mess, and they put that guy in front of everyone. And this is what it usually goes like. The guy stands up and tells everyone, I was born in a Christian home, but then I turned from God. At the age of four, I became the leader of Hell's Angels. I led the gang. I started selling heroin out of the basket of my tricycle. I was sexually promiscuous, a nuisance to society, even spent the fifth and sixth grade in a maximum security prison for burning down an orphanage full of special needs dolphins. But then God came to me and in a dream and I changed my life and I'm here to tell you, you should follow Jesus too. It's not a joke because you know exactly what I mean, don't you? <laughs> when we idolize those stories and then get surprised when our kids pursue the same path, that's folly. Do you, know, you want to know what I want my kids' testimonies to be? When did you become a Christian? I was raised in a Christian home. I heard the gospel. I always knew I was a sinner and I needed God and I loved him. I set my heart to do his work and I've never looked back. I want that for all of my kids. Boring. <laughs> That's a wonderful testimony. We have to set an expectation of faithfulness. Quickly following that, we need to warn against unfaithfulness. And this is what David did. Not only did David expect faithfulness of his son. He didn't go, well, why would I, why would I provide all this funds, all the provisions for this? Because he might just not do it. He expected all this will be used. The plans will be utilized. The people, the workforce will be put into, uh, activated. It'll work. This is what's going to happen. That was the expectation. And he lived out the remaining set of his days, planning for it to actually work out that way. And he also warned Solomon in love. Towards the end of Chronicles, chapter 28, verse 9, this is him revisiting with his son at the end of his life, some charge. This is what he says to Solomon. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But listen to this. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. David did not teach his son that he was a special little snowflake that could do no wrong. Jesus will be waiting there for you. He'll, he'll just be following along and whenever you need him, he'll show up like Tinkerbell and save the day. Listen, that is not our God. And David would not give that false gospel to his son. 
Follow God. Honor what he has said in his commands. And if you forsake him, it's over for you forever. He will forsake you forever. I love you, son. Don't do that. The first three, David gave his son a mission, and we need to do the same. David expected faithfulness from his son. He set him on a path and just pointed him towards victory. Third, he warned him against unfaithfulness. Fourth, he instructed him to be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do you remember hearing that? He said this in verse 13 of chapter 22. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. We need courageous, battle-ready Christians. And we need a whole generation of them. We need a whole generation coming next. You need to teach your kids true courage. If they pick that up, they will stand out in this world. They will look different than this world because the world is full of cowards. Cowards! They fear everything but God. And wicked worldly influences out there, they know it. They know it. All they have to do is threaten, just threaten, to label a person as a bigot, racist, sexist, homophobe, Nazi, science denier. And people will get in line and do almost anything to avoid those labels. Your kids need thick skin. We cannot have another generation of Christians that says, just tell me where to march, what to post, where to riot, how to vote, what not to say, how not to offend. Just whatever you do, don't call me names in public. But we have been commanded by Jesus to fear nothing but God. We have been commanded that. Those of the world are afraid of their own shadow. They're always looking for someone else to fight their battles. And often, even the appearance of courage is founded on nothing because they're scared to death. This last week, I was driving behind a vehicle. When I got close to the stoplight, I saw a bumper sticker I'd never seen before. It said, protected by witchcraft. Rarely before I've ever wanted a rear end of a vehicle just to have a conversation. (laughs) I didn't. And as I drove around and I looked over at the driver, he's alone in his car, no one around, all the windows up, with a mask on. Wait, protected? Yeah, sounds about right, doesn't it? Doesn't it? We are the only ones that can have real courage. We're the only ones who really can. Because we have a foundation for it. We actually have a reason to have courage. Jesus said, what can man do to you? All they can do is torture you. All they can do is kill you. That's all that man can do. That's the worst they've got. Don't fear man. Be courageous. We have got to raise up courageous, battle-ready Christians, men and women of God who do not fear the world, do not fear men or even death. This last week, uh, we prayed corporately in our prayer time for Pastor James Coates up in, up in uh, Canada. He's been following the story at all. He was, in, uh, he was put in prison for worshiping peacefully with other saints. That's it. That's it. That is it. At one point, I heard this morning, he was in leg irons at one point. 
That's how dangerous that man is to society. We prayed for him. We thank God for his courage and prayed for that for his congregation. But I don't want to neglect this. His wife is a warrior. I heard, a, I heard her speak at a, um, a statement that she had put out at a rally she did in support of her husband. This is what she said. This is amazing. Her name is Erin. We need to pray for Sister Erin Coates. She said, people ask, what can we do to support you? Open up your churches. Preach the word. Sing your hearts out. Love one another. Be bold in your witness for Christ. Share the gospel. <laughs> That's a warrior sister right there. We need more of that. If God is for us, who can be against us? If we really believe that, then we would look different than what the world looks like. How can we do this? How can we train this into the next generation? Well, we can start by rewarding courageous behavior in our children. How about that? What's rewarded is repeated. You heard that before? Whatever you reward in your household will be repeated. And on that note, we have got to stop this foolish crusade to try to extinguish all possible risk from every sphere in which our kids play. Life is dangerous. It is. And when we put rubber pads on all the corners of the furniture, all the way up till they're 18, we deny them the opportunity to grow, to build some toughness, get some scars and calluses, so that they will be able to meet the dangerous challenges that they will inevitably face in the world. You know, sometimes when a young bully moves into the neighborhood, the best thing for the rest of the kids is not for mommy to go rescue them out of that. But to teach the kids to stand up to the bully. And when a young boy or girl finally stands up and says no more, we should not chastise that kid, but reward them. Listen, the truth is that what's best for the bully is that being stood up to. Sometimes a well-timed and very public smackdown is what is needed to humble some little punk. That scuffle in the sandlot may be, think about this, it may be what keeps the bully for the week from becoming a bully for life. What happened to the good old days where, where if someone had to have it out behind the, behind the dumpster in the, the kid's play parking lot or something like that, uh, then they ended up best friends by the end of the week. Brothers and sisters, you need to teach your kids righteousness and strength, okay? You need to teach them when to take a hit in humility and not hit back. And when to dish one out with overwhelming force. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, that could be an indication that you have choked down the passivity pill that the world has been trying to force-feed Christians for decades. What I'm saying to you right now would be obvious to every generation that's existed prior to ours. Well, of course you stand up to a bully. Who, who's telling you to not do that? Christians say to not do that. Because they believe the lie of the world. And the world loves passive Christians because we're easy to manipulate. Our young men and women need some fears to overcome. They need some little dragons to fight. They must learn courage. And you don't get courage from living in a bubble. This is literally the point of the past couple sermons. Remember, at the end of Joshua's generation, God said that he left some enemies around. Why? So that your kids have someone to fight. Literally. So that they will learn war. You need to teach your kids, though, that the source of their courage, the source of what they need to stand in the face of fear, what their mission requires, is not in them. It's not in their self-reliance independence, 
personal toughness, but in God, in God himself. This is why David will go on to say in 1 Chronicles 28, same, same, same conversation with his son, verse 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. See that? Take courage because God is great. Of course you might die. Of course you might be beat down. So what? You have courage not because you're strong, but because your God is strong. I know atheists can say that. Fifth point, final point. David made provision for the task. He prepared for the win. This is, this is unmistakable. Isn't it? It's like all over this whole portion. It's like one of the biggest things we see popping out of this. David had been told it would not be his generation that built the temple, but that did not stop him from working towards its fulfillment. The passage says this again. Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that's to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I will, therefore, make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. With great pains, he says, I have provided for the house of the Lord. To these you must add. David invested the years of his life and his reign into the success of his son and future generations. That's what he did. David did not just say, man, I really hope my son decides to honor God and then retire to California to spend the last 20 years of his life playing shuffleboard and collecting stamps. He stuck around and built up all the kid could need to succeed to include more work left to do with great pains. It's going to take sacrifice with great pains. It would be so easy for us to take stock of how things are going in this world today and conclude, I think rightly, that this generation is lost and just sit back and mope around until we die, leaving the hard work to another generation to clean up this mess. But victory is ours. And it isn't going to be won by us. So who will do it? Our great, great, great grandkids, that's who. We need to save up for them. We need to build things for them. We need to think about 100, 200, 300 years from now and stop, stop thinking like Christians in our day who think that their generation is the last one. Christians have keep doing this. You've got to, don't think, well, obviously he's going to come before I die because I'm at the apex of humanity. No, you're not. You're not. Okay? There's a lot more work to be done. It's going to take way longer than your life. Well, the internet. Yeah, how's that looking? Does it look like that's working great for us? It's going to take some time, and we're going to have to build for future wins. Let us, as David did, leverage our resources, our knowledge, our experiences, influence to set our kids up to win. That, I believe, must be our new strategy. Our kids, set them up. I want to close just by reading Psalm 78. Verses one through seven. David wrote this. And like I said before, no generation before ours thought, thought rightly that the way the gospel advances is by hitting reset at the next generation. Oh, they didn't get the temple done in their day. Well, start over. What? No, what? what? No, we keep building on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone because we are the temple of God being built until he returns. 
David said this, and it will show us the way that these ancients thought about future generations so much better than we do. Verses 1 through 7. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Let's pray. Father, help us to be like David's psalm commands. Help us to quickly get on board with the many generations of saints who have built up your kingdom through the ages by actively investing into their youth. Lord, help us to not squander the inheritance that belongs to those who will come after us. Help us to invest with great pains into the next generation. Father, I pray this for the parents in a very obvious way, uh, that they would train their kids. For the grandparents, that they would not let go of the training of their kids and grandkids after their kids turn 18 and they have grandkids. Father, help teach them how to be an active part of the discipleship and training and raising of the next generations that'll come after them. Father, for those who are single among us, Father, those who may never have kids, couples who may not have kids, not today or may not in the future, Father, all of us are to be involved in this endeavor. And I pray that you give us the wisdom to know how to do that. But first, inspire us to get busy doing it. Help us to build for the next generation so that your name would be made great, that we would make your enemies a footstool for your feet, build up this holy temple until your son returns. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. And all of God's people said, amen.